Well, I hope for those who were watching the tennis, you had a good afternoon. Um, I was watching the tennis a couple of days ago, and a reporter asks Andy Murray what was probably the most depressing question I have ever heard. Um, it goes something along the lines of, Andy, we, we have lost in the last few weeks a prime minister, we are leaving the EU, and Wales are out of the Euros. What does it feel like to be the last hope of Britain? And his response was, it can't be that bad, can it? But I was thinking about that question this afternoon and how actually what the question was is, how does it feel like to be our last hope of a saviour? Everything else is falling apart. Will you save the hope of Britain and win for us? Now, I won't give away the score, but I think it's pretty obvious what happened this afternoon. But it just made me think as we're coming tonight, and just the songs we've been singing, praise God that we were not looking to Andy Murray to be our saviour. Praise God that we have something much more heart-rendering, much stronger, much more everlasting than Andy Murray. One of his comments after the match was, what's next? He said, I'll enjoy this and I'll get on to the next thing. It was such a fleeting moment. Our whole world was looking to Andy Murray to win the tennis. And in two days' time, we'll have forgotten about it. But praise God that Jesus does not forget about us. And he is our saviour, even when there is no hope anywhere else. Let's turn to John chapter 17, where we'll be focusing tonight and considering the prayer of Jesus. Uh, last week we considered the first five verses of John 17, and we learnt that Jesus was still in the upper room, most likely at this point with the disciples, and he begins to pray to the Father, talking specifically to his dad as a son, not as a, a, a royal, but as a son talking to his dad. And his sole focus is to give glory to the Father. Before we do anything this evening, I'm just going to read those five verses so they are in our minds. So starting from verse 1 in chapter 17. After Jesus said this, he looked towards the heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So that's where we left off last week. And the focus is entirely on this relationship between Jesus, God the Son, and God the Father and how everything that Jesus has done in his life and his ministry was to bring glory to the Father. So tonight we now begin in verse 6. To help us a little bit with this passage, we're going to be looking at Jesus praying to the disciples all the way through to verse 19. I'm going to break it up into two sections. The first is the subject of Jesus' prayer, that is the disciples. And secondly, then we'll look at the content, what he actually had to pray for in terms of the disciples. But let's look at verse 6. I have revealed to you those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. 
You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. I like this idea that the disciples were given to Jesus. Notice that the disciples were God's to give. If you give someone something, it has a connotation that you owned it before, or at least you had power over it before. And Jesus sought them out as this gift that was given by God the Father, obeying what Jesus was called to do, which was to go out and to show them the love of the Father. And when he calls each disciple, he calls them to follow him. And in obedience, they do so. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I come from you, and they believed that you sent me. One of the common themes over all my studies in this last five or six weeks is God's sovereignty, that he is in power over everything. And I was talking with someone recently just about the confusion that life can bring, how you can have so many different paths you can go on, so many different options you have in life at each stage of life. And it's easy for us to get really stressed and really worried and really concerned of which one to choose. But in my studies over the last few weeks, it's the reality that God is sovereign, that if we remain in God, if we remain in his presence, in his will, then God is supreme in all and he will direct us on the path he wants us to go. And here we see just that, that God is sovereign and supreme ruler of all. That he knew who the disciples were going to be. That he gave the disciples Jesus and he gave Jesus the disciples. It was God's sovereignty sovereignty, and his control over this whole situation that brought about Jesus seeking out these disciples. Now, to ensure this relationship between God the Father and God the Son, God gives Jesus specific words to speak to them to help them grasp that he was the Son of God sent from God the Father. And then we go into this beginning of his kind of focused prayer. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me for they are yours. He's talking about the disciples here that were given to Christ, that were owned by God and given to Christ. All I have is yours and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. Jesus is specifically praying for disciples. It's it's really easy to get caught up in this wording and praying for those you have given me. This is specifically to the disciples. We'll move on next week to look at all believers. But we've established that they were given by God. But I think what is interesting here is when Jesus says, all I have is yours and all you have is mine. So there's this simple truth of coexistence. That yes, God gave the disciples, but in equal measure, Jesus gave the disciples. That yes, Jesus is the son of God on earth, but he completely coexists with God. And therefore, if you can wrap your head around this, These disciples weren't randomly picked. They were preordained to become disciples by Jesus, by God, and by the Spirit. The Godhead was under, everything under the Godhead was in control here. Everything was happening with a reason and a plan. So here we see that this specific subject to the prayer is the disciples. But why is he praying for the disciples? Why, why pray at this point after four, ver- four chapters of almost preaching to them about what's going to happen? Why pray for the disciples? Well, we see this. 
in verse 11. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. The departure of Jesus was total crisis for the disciples. They had dedicated their life, their ministries, their family, their thoughts, their energy, all to Jesus. They believed in Jesus. They believed he was sent by the Father. They believed he was the Son of God. And now he was leaving. They had no idea what to do, what to think. You can just imagine their whole world is just kind of crumbling around them. I've never necessarily experienced this myself, but I was talking to a parent this week who said that their child was, for the first time, moving away from home. And the idea of not being, you know, not living with them anymore. What's going to happen to them? What am I going to do with all the spare time? And yes, there was joy in that sense, but there was that fear, that concern, that worry. I'll no longer be near my child. This is the children of God saying, and why is Jesus leaving us? It was crisis to them. So Jesus goes on to pray four very specific things for the disciples. And these requests tonight will be our focus of this rest of the prayer and also our lessons that we can learn tonight as well. There, you'll see there's a kind of cause and effect that will happen. But the first one we see in verse 11 and 12, let me read it out. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture may be fulfilled. So the first thing we can learn is that Jesus prays that they will be protected. Jesus is leaving, and therefore the disciples no longer have the protection of the Son of God with them. They are going to be open to attack from those that have become disgruntled with the teaching of Jesus, namely probably the Pharisees and those of the chief priests. But more importantly, and probably more significantly, they will come under attack by the devil. You see, Jesus is walking alongside them for three years in ministry. Now, if Jesus walks away, if Jesus leaves, the devil could come into place and tempt and attack the disciples. If you just flick your eyes to verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world. Jesus is, is not praying here to remove the disciples from the situation, but rather he's saying, protect them from the evil one. Protect them from the devil. Protect them from temptation. Protect them from attacks. Now, of course, here we read here that, yes, he's asking for protection of them all, except for one, which is Judas, who is already doomed. But Jesus' concern here is for specific attacks from the devil. And I couldn't help but find the kind of comparison to the Lord's Prayer, which says, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. It's the same connotation here. Deliver from the devil. Protect us. Put a wall around us. The song we sang, he is a mighty fortress. Take your disciples, God, and put them in your fortress. Protect them from all. And we read that in verse 12, that it is the name of the Lord that will protect them. Psalm 118.10 says, All the nations surrounded me. This idea of constantly being attacked. But in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. 
You see, Jesus isn't praying for any specific action. He isn't praying for any specific plan. He's praying that God the Father, His name, will protect them and all that it means. When I was reading this, it was kind of hard um, to figure out what we can take out from this in terms of this week coming ahead. But here's our first lesson. We should pray for protection. We spend a lot of time praying, or certainly I hope we do. And we're part of a spiritual warfare. If you don't believe so, just read the first few chapters of Job. The devil is prowling around, waiting for one of us that he can devour. And when I was considering this lesson of we should pray for protection, I was reading Bruce Milne, and he quotes Don Carson, and I love this quote. The spiritual dimensions of this prayer of Jesus are consistent and overwhelming. By contrast, we spend much more time today praying about our health, our projects, our decisions, our finances, and even our games than we do praying about the danger of the evil one. I wonder if that is true for you tonight. I wonder how many of us shot up that prayer of God, just, just let Andy Murray win. Just, just one more time. Go on. Just, that would be great. That would just finish my day off great. Or praying for the stresses of our work tomorrow. Now, I'm not saying in this list that Don Carson says that any of these are inherently bad. Of course, it's right to pray for health. Of course, it is right to involve God in all aspects of our life. But what Don Carson's saying here is, If you equate the amount of times we pray for these, these things seem to be the most important to us. Yet what we're seeing here from Jesus and from Don Carson is the most important thing that we can pray for is protection in the spiritual warfare that we are in. How many of us actually each day pray that we should not be tempted, that we will be protected from temptation? How many of us go into work and situations in our work life that we struggle with and instead of praying for the specific situation, pray that the devil will not get hold of us in those situations. Yes, God is a mighty fortress and absolutely we should pray that he will wrap his loving arms and his strong walls around us. But secondly, we learn of another thing that Jesus prayed for. Jesus prays that the disciples would be united. Verse 11, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. If you think about the Godhead, if you remove Jesus, I'm not saying that that is possible, I'm saying if you remove Jesus, it is like that three-legged stool. It is no longer as sturdy. If you remove two, if you remove one, it is not as sturdy. Unity in the Godhead is victory against the devil. Unity in the Godhead is victory against the devil because the Godhead is all-powerful when they are united. And that is the same for us here tonight. Unity in the body of Christ is like unity in the Godhead. It is strongest when we are together and it is weakest when we are apart. 
So what Jesus is praying here for his disciples is not only to protect them from the devil, but to protect them from each other, from each other's views, from each other's considerations of what to do next. Jesus knows he's leaving and he knows there's going to be a conversation of what do we do now? He knows there's going to be confusion. So he prays that they would be united, that they would be one, one family, one body in Christ. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Ephesians 4 and 3 says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Jesus was praying that the disciples would not devour each other. And in that is our second lesson, that we should be known for what unites us, not what divides us. We should be known for what unites us, not what divides us. You just have to ask someone that doesn't come to church, their view of church, their view of the church in their community, or the global church. And it wouldn't take long to find someone that would say, you all seem to disagree, to fight. Just recently, even in the Church of Scotland, there has been so much in the press about churches splitting over the issue of homosexuality. Now, I am not saying that these issues should not be debated. But what is clear is that God never intended us to live in disunity. He intended his children to live in unity. That is our challenge here at Hamilton Baptist. There may be things we disagree with. There may be people that we just don't get on with. There may be directions in the new vision that we're putting together that we're fearful over or worried about or just completely disagree. We should not be united in the things we disagree on. Instead, we should be united in what we do agree on. That salvation comes from the Lord of first importance issues. You see, it's all well and good being protected from the devil, but we equally need to be protected from ourselves. We should be known for what unites us, not what divides us. Thirdly, we see in verse 13 that Jesus prays that the disciples would be delighted. It says, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have full measure of my joy within them. The full measure of of joy in Jesus. How many of us have that full measure? How many of us truly find joy in Jesus? I was talking to someone this week and we were just chatting about whether you should come to church twice on a Sunday or not, or whether that's just a bit overkill. And one of the things that struck me was when you are joyful in Jesus, you don't have a question of whether you should go to church twice or not, you really have the question of, can we have a third service? Where's the prayer meeting? Where can I get fellowship? Can I have a meal with someone? Can I be mentored? Can I be discipled? Can I disciple someone else? Can I be involved? Why? Because I love Jesus. Because Jesus saved me. Because I live in Jesus. Because it's all about Jesus. I was laughing with some folks this week. There was someone once who counted how many times I said Jesus in a sermon. And he would say, if I didn't say it enough times, then my sermon wasn't quite on point. 
I'm just going to make it nice and simple tonight. It's all about Jesus. I could finish here. We don't need to talk about 101 things. It's about Jesus. We find salvation in him. We find joy in him. We find contentment in him. We don't need to chase the things of the world, chase our arguments and disagreements. We should just be joyful in Jesus. And you see that in the disciples in early Acts. There's that initial confusion of what to do. And then you just see them joyful in Jesus. Acts 5 and 6, the apostles and the disciples get beaten near to death and they jump up and praise. They're clapping hands, they're singing praises. Why? Because they find joy in the fact that they were beaten for Jesus. So here Jesus is praying specifically that they will be protected from the devil, protected from themselves, and given joy. And finally, Jesus prays that they would be dedicated. Verses 17 and 19. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world. And here's, let me just read that again. Here's what's key. As you sent me into the world... I have sent them into the world. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus is saying here that the disciples were to remain so that they could continue the work of Jesus. They were to live available to God's service. How many of us live available to God's service? What does that look like? What does it look like to be available? Well, for starters, it means we should be praying about it. God, make me available. Strip out of my life anything that's going to cause me to not be focused on you. What is amazing is that when you read this prayer, but then have in your mind our Acts series that we've just completed... The disciples go through a time of confusion and concern, not knowing what to do, hurt because their Lord and Savior has died. Yet in Acts, they bound out of the doors and churches start up everywhere. They pray for protection continuously. But more than that, they're not just available to do God's work. They just get on and do it. I was looking throughout this whole prayer, the prayer to the disciples. And I was just considering what was going through Jesus' mind here. These are his best friends, if you will. These are the guys he has lived with for three years. You don't live with someone for three years and not get to know them pretty well. He has shared meals with them. And he knows that he is about to die. And he is going to leave them behind. And he doesn't pray at this point for them to be comforted. Instead, his focus of prayer is on two things. Protection and how they will live out their lives for God. And I think two go hand in hand. I think if you do not know the reality of the protection of God, you cannot find joy in Christ. 
Because the reality is that when we go out into this world and we face temptation and we face a world that hates us for what we believe, we will crumble if we do not believe we are protected by God. There was a film, I can't remember what film it is now, but over this um, community there's a, a big shield that goes over the top. And the people know that when they're in the city, under the shield, nothing can harm them. But they equally know when they're outside of the shield, death is imminent. As Christians, we are within the shield. We are protected. No matter how bad it gets out there, no matter how bad it gets in your office environment, in your studies, in your families, no matter how bad your health gets, no matter how bad your family situation gets, you are protected by the love and sacrifice of Jesus. Your salvation doesn't come under question when people hurl insults. Your salvation doesn't come under question when you're stressed out at work. And when you realize that, when you truly live in that, then you can delight in Jesus and be available for service. What did I take out of this passage this week? The love of Jesus. The love of Jesus that he humbled himself to pray for his disciples. Jesus wants us protected. God's willing to protect us. The question really is, what are we going to do with that protection? Yes, God is a mighty fortress, but are we going to stay in that fortress and just huddle in? Are we going to close the doors of Hamilton Baptist and just enjoy this evening service together and think we're protected? That's not what God gives us protection to do. He doesn't give us the great commission to say, close your church doors and sit in comfortably, I'll protect you. He says, go out into the world and I will be with you always. I will protect you always. This is what this prayer is about. Disciples, go and do my work, share the gospel, raise churches, train leaders, bring people to Christ, baptize them, and I will protect you in all of it. And here is the challenge for us, and on this I close. As we look at our vision of the church in these coming few months and years, as we build momentum, as ministries develop as we continue to talk over it and pray over it, as we start doing the vision, don't fear. Don't sit still in comfort in the fortress. Realize the fortress is with you always in your salvation. Realize as we go out as a church and we put this vision into practice that God is with us, protecting us, We need not fear financial issues. We need not fear ridicule from those around us. We need not fear the council if we want to do something. We need not fear building regulations. We need not fear lack of leaders. We need not fear any of these things because God is protecting us and simply calling us to go and preach the gospel, the good news, making disciples and baptizing them. What does this look like tomorrow? It means waking up. I'm praying a very simple prayer. Praise God I am protected.
Praise God, I am loved. Father, help me serve you today. Send me out. Protect me as I do your work. I pray that all for all of us here at Hamilton Baptist. Let's finish and pray. Father, just as we consider this prayer of your son to his disciples, what anguish must have filled the disciples' heart to realize that Jesus was just moments away from leaving them. But Father, we have the beauty of your word that we know the story, we know what comes next, and we know from your son's death and resurrection that your church was built and that many were added to your kingdom. Father, I pray that we know the reality of your protection. We know the reality that we may be attacked, we may be tempted, we may even, as the Apostle Paul was, beaten and whipped and imprisoned. But Father, we know that you are with us always. Father, help us not be apathetic in that protection. Help us not just sit still, but help us realize that you are with us always, that it is not connected to a church building or even to a house group, but that as you have taken control of our lives, as you are supreme, as you are sovereign over all, that as we go and continue the work of Jesus in reaching people for you, that your loving arms will be around us, protecting us at each stage. Father, I pray that as we go out and fulfill your commands, that we will see great fruit. Father, what a blessing it is that we have already accepted new members in this year, that we have couples getting married, that we have families coming to join us, that our growth groups are expanding. Father, it all looks great within this building. But Father, help us reach souls. Bless us with souls being saved. And not just to our number here, Father, but add to your number in your kingdom. Father, we pray this all in your loving arms. Amen.